everyone. I am Farah Kimji, and you are listening to the Futura Talks podcast. I believe the future will be built by those who see opportunity where others see uncertainty. It will be built by people that don't look like the traditional leaders of our past, but by women and individuals from diverse backgrounds that see the world differently and who are driven to make it better for all. This podcast will feature these people, self-made leaders and entrepreneurs that defy odds and are motivated to build a better future. We will also share practical advice for how you can unlock your full potential as the leader of your own Futura. Now, let's jump into today's episode. This week's guest, Swish Goswami, knew from a young age that he wanted to follow the path of entrepreneurship, building a journal of business ideas since he was 10 years old. Today, Swish is the CEO of Surf, a tech company providing brands a better way to engage and understand consumers while compensating them for their data. Surf has made two acquisitions and provides zero-party data and commerce enablement opportunities to some of the world's biggest brands like Netflix, Sony Music, NBA, Amazon Prime Gaming, Electronic Arts, and many more. Swish has given four TED Talks, released a book with Kogan Page called The Young Entrepreneur, and is an investor in companies like Faze Clan, League of Innovators, Othership, and Wombo AI. For his entrepreneurial and philanthropic achievements, he was recognized as Startup Canada's Young Entrepreneur of the Year, LinkedIn's Top Voice, and a United Nations Outstanding Youth Leader. In this episode, we talk about all sorts of juicy things, how entrepreneurship can be a viable path right out of high school and university, how his passions and interests are at the center of his business ventures, how curiosity has led Swish to start multiple businesses all before the age of 25, what criteria he evaluates when deciding to invest in a business, and why having and holding a big vision is key to building your business. I really enjoyed this conversation with Swish, and I know you will too. So let's dive in. All right. Hi, Swish. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah. I just want to share for the audience that I've actually been following Swish for, I would say, a solid three or four years on LinkedIn, although he's got over 140,000 followers, so he probably didn't know that. But more recently, I had a chance to actually hear him speak at a tech conference that we were both at, and I quickly approached him after his talk, which was all about personal branding. It was an amazing talk. And I approached him and I, you know, kind of shyly asked him, would you want to be on this podcast? And he so graciously said yes right away to me. So that is why Swish is here. And I'm just so excited to be uh, sitting down in conversation with you. Same here. No, I appreciate that. It was a super fun event, Bet Bet on Canada Summit. And I'm excited about next year's event as well. I was actually speaking to the team at the peak and I know they want to make it even bigger next year. So that's going to be pretty fun. Ooh, that's exciting. Yeah, it was awesome. And just to to see all of the innovation happening in the Canadian tech innovation ecosystem. So yeah, well, let's dive in for today. I, you know, 
I was looking through your LinkedIn and just articles about you and so much content that you have out there. And you, you know, you have all of these very impressive accomplishments and you've had them from such a young age. So I'm actually really curious to know, you know, what you were like as a child, you know, what your upbringing was like, and did you know what you aspired to be when you were younger? For sure. I definitely don't think I had this all figured out when I was young. Like there was no master plan or anything that I wanted to to capitalize upon. I think one of the things that I really do pride my parents on is kind of the willingness they gave me to be very curious and kind of the freedom they gave me to go and explore various interests at a young age. So I do remember, you know, vividly my mother driving me, you know, from a morning field hockey practice to school and then after school to karate or dance or debate um, and just encouraging me to get into everything, you know, like try as many things as possible. You know, I'll drive you around. Don't worry about that. Um, And I think that sort of support that I got from my mother in particular really did help me kind of figure out at an early age what I was really interested in, what I liked, what I didn't like, what are things that I was very passionate about. Um, And I kind of started around probably 14, 15, starting to think a little bit more about my career on a more intense level, really. Like I started Mm -hmm. becoming very ambitious. I think movies definitely played a big part of that. I think um, I started thinking that I didn't want to necessarily just get a job at the age of 22 and then retire uh, after getting married and and all of that. Like, you know, like just a classic story, just like getting married in your late 20s, early 30s, and then working until you retire in your 40s or 50s or whatever. I just didn't see that as my career path. So I thought, why can't I construct a life for myself based on passions that I have and seeing if I can merge them all together. And so it took a couple of stabs, honestly, like it wasn't like I was able to figure it out on my first try, especially when it came to entrepreneurship. Like I've had failed businesses in the past, things that didn't work out. But I think when I was about 20, 21 and started surf, that's kind of when I knew, okay, this is my calling. You know, I was able to kind of merge a lot of passions, put them together and and really start a company that was based around a problem I was very passionate about. Yeah. And what would you say those early passions really were that you were discovering more so in your teens? Yeah, I think for me, number one, definitely like basketball. I I, I loved basketball okay. and I loved playing the game, but I also really wanted to be involved in the world, like just meeting the players, meeting managers, working with them. I knew many of them we're starting to get more into technology, which is what I thought could be my breaking point into the industry. It's like, what if I was positioning myself to be a great investment opportunity for some of these players, which is what eventually happened is, yeah. you know, we had like Thaddeus Young, Kyle Kuzma, Davon Reed, Aaron Gordon, who've now come on board as a part of surf. Um, mm-hmm. I was also very passionate about dance. I was passionate generally about business. Like I was very passionate about technology. Um, I have, you know, memories of building a hovercraft with my father when I was 10 years old, of starting a custom lapel pins company, part of junior achievement when I was 14, um, of starting a tech company in my first year of college that was trying to focus on food delivery, like getting leftover and excess food to university students that are in need of it. Um, And so I kind of always had a flair for this, but I just, I think it was only around the age of 18 or 19 when I realized I could actually make entrepreneurship a full-time career right away. Like I didn't need to become a lawyer first, Mm -hmm. you know, make money and then start a business. There was this entire kind of route, which was definitely a harder route to just go about raising money, uh, doing that, and then being able to kind of build a business around the money that you raised. Um, And so I decided to kind of around 19 network pretty aggressively uh, especially on a platform like LinkedIn, like I started, you know, posting quite actively there. And I was one of the only people really who was posting on a consistent basis and also sharing candidly quality content. And through kind of interviewing people through posting content, my network started to kind of build 
itself out in terms of I had athletes, I had investors, I had high net worth people who I could now go to and say, hey, what do you think about this idea? Would you be interested in investing in it? And that's kind of how I was able to start a business at the age of 20. Yeah, it's it's really quite incredible. And I think, you know, they often say entrepreneurs are are not born, you know, they're they're sort of um I guess they fall into it rather. But in your case, I don't know, you were pretty entrepreneurial from a very early start. Like, did you have any early influences around you? Were your parents entrepreneurs or did you have other examples or role models that you're really that were really inspiring you? I, I definitely know my parents, you know, both aren't entrepreneurs. They're both within academia. My brother as well as a lawyer. None of my, you know, family members have ever been entrepreneurs. Uh, typically, you know, my mom's family is within the military. And then my dad's family are are kind of lawyers, doctors, engineers, the standard. Mm-hmm. Um, so I didn't really have a lot of inspiration coming from my family as much as I think just movies and books and I don't know, like, especially growing up, like I used to, I used to watch like Steve Jobs' Apple keynotes and mm-hmm. get really obsessed about one day maybe going and having the ability to pitch my shareholders or my board or my investors and kind of getting them excited about something. Um, and again, like when I was 10, when I built that hovercraft, my father, I started to think, okay, what else could I make? What else could I build? And that's where I even have like journals in Calgary, um, which is where I grew up primarily. Uh, where I wrote down like a bunch of business ideas that I had, you know, whether it was creating a hotel or whether it was making a bank. Like, this is just me, right? At the age of 10, very naive, thinking that the world is my oyster uh, and writing down a bunch of ideas that I thought were really cool. And some of those ideas were unrealistic. Some of those ideas, uh, you know, potentially down the road, I'd love to be able to build it out. But I built it all under this banner called Ajax, um, age 10 Ajax. And Mm. that's actually why even now, uh, when I invest in companies, I do it through uh, my own fund called Ajax Capital, uh, oh, kind of like love that. To, to kind of when I started that entrepreneurial spark. I would love to see what is on your journal, <laughs> the <laughs> list of ideas. I have one of my There's own. So many. <laughs> I have, I have, I have some, some which, you know, no one has actually done it yet. So they're still viable. And then others where there's some version of it because it's from 10 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then others that really just need to go to the, the graveyard of ideas. <laughs> but I think it's so important to have them. The thing is yep. that most people don't actually go and pursue them. And I think that's clearly what differentiates you. Um, so, you know, that's really cool. Thank you for sharing that. Now, you know, you before starting your your business, True Fan, which is now known as Surf, you had a company called Rafiki Media, and this is the the company that you started while still in university. What yeah. ins- you know, what was that business, and what inspired that idea? Yeah, it started Rafiki kind of in grade twelve as well. And even before I went to Toronto, I wanted to build a media agency, um, but I specifically wanted to focus on social media. And I thought, hey, look, I. Um, pretty decent when it comes to posting content. Why can't I teach other people how to do that as well? Mm. Um, and so I thought, why don't I create an agency where I can ideally manage a brand social media, help them post, give them a strategy uh, that they can actually go and implement with their own team. And so, you know, we had about seven clients, I think, at our peak. Uh, one of our biggest clients actually was Delta Cabs, which was out on the West Coast, uh, a big cab company that I think exists still. I don't know. I mean, this is again, pre-Uber. So who knows if they're still around? Um, But yeah, I I just remember doing that and feeling super inspired to kind of share what I had learned from my own personal journey of putting out content um, and being able to teach other people through an agency. 
Yeah, I, I love that because I really do find that most businesses are born from either some sort of problem that you yourself are facing or transformation that you've had or yeah. something that you can teach others. There's there's so many options for starting a business these days. And so it's yeah. it's great to see that that's where, you know, your first true business. I mean, you've had you had a few in high school, you know, really stemmed from. And yeah. and then you, you know, you did touch on mentioning that you know, the path of being able to go out and start a business right out of university, even though that wasn't what most people traditionally were doing, you saw that path for yourself. Was there a belief, you know, that you were really tethered to that made you feel like that was the right next step? Because you probably didn't have as many people around you that were doing, you know, going on that path. So what was that belief that you really were tethered to? I think one, I, I generally started to lose touch with what I was studying at college. I didn't generally enjoy what I was mm. studying in college. And so I didn't necessarily see a path forward. Like I, I thought, okay, you know, if I spend two more years and I graduate with this degree, what does it really open up? It didn't kind of feel exciting to me in terms of the opportunities that it opened up. Um, I felt like if I had an opportunity to build a business and to go all in on it, um, it would be awesome to just even test it out and see if it worked out for one year. So that's what she, what my parents gave me as like an ultimatum is okay. they gave me one year. They were like, Hey, if you can go and build this and be independent financially and kind of stand on your own two feet, then we'll support you or else you need to go back to school. And so that one year that I was given, <laughs> I, I could work my ass off pretty much because I didn't want to go back to school. And sure enough, you know, I was able to kind of make it work and go about, you know, being independent, being able to, to kind of pay my own way through life kind of past that point, which was, which was pretty nice. I love that. I love how supportive your parents were, but also that bit of an ultimatum there, right. That really put some fire under you to, to get going with it, which is, which is incredible. So tell us a little bit more about surf or, you know, originally true fan. That's when I started following you, but now called surf, how did you come up with the initial idea for the company? And you Mm. did mention, you know, your love for, um, basketball and and that, and there's a connection there, I know, but tell us how you came up with it and, and how it's really been evolving over the last several years. Sure, yeah, I mean, TrueFan, we started the company four and a half years ago. Uh, the initial idea was, can we help brands and influencers find who their top fans on social media are? Because after essentially I had dropped out of school, I moved to New York and I had this incredible opportunity to work with my friend Elliot, who was my roommate in New York on his account at Dunk, at D-U-N-K on Instagram. And so I did that for about a year where I worked with him as his co-founder, helping him raise money, manage a team um, and helping him also fundraise. And essentially what he had built was this Instagram account for basketball fans at Dunk, which had about at the time 1.5 million followers. Now it has, I think, 2.7 million And we grew that network to 21 accounts across TikTok, Instagram, and Snapchat with an overall following of 11 million followers. So we were working with brands like Warner Music, Gatorade, Sony Music, 2K to promote their content on our channels. And that entire experience taught me not only about influencer marketing and community building, but it also taught me a lot about what sort of marketing challenges do brands face. Mm -hmm. And one of the big challenges I found that they faced was not knowing who was within their existing audience not knowing the influencers that already followed them, not knowing their engaged followers that are liking and commenting on every single post. Or hence, so that was the original impetus. Yeah, for, for... not knowing their true fan, I that, guess. That, yeah. exactly. Sorry, so, I had to go there. I know that's where the name 100%, 100%, that's where the name came from. And 
Um, my mom actually came up with the name. She she said, you know, maybe call the company True Fan. She actually added an E in the name though. So we just removed the E uh, yeah. and tried to make it kind of cool. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we launched the company and then about a year and a half later, we started to realize that, yes, it's great. You know, we're helping brands understand their social audience, but the world is becoming more privacy conscious. And in this mm-hmm. privacy conscious world, the way that brands generate consumer data and get access to consumer data is going to look very different. And so we felt, why not help brands that are you know, enjoying our current product, but are very limited in what they can do with it? Why don't we help them also understand their audiences across the board and help them generate consumer opt-in data. So like help them generate emails and phone numbers, help them understand what people are doing on the internet anonymously and do that by compensating people directly for the data when they share it. So that's what we decided to push into more in 2020. Um, We made our second acquisition, which was a giveaways platform called player.gg out in Kelowna. Giveaways were really the first instrument we used to kind of validate that people are willing to share their data for some sort of value back. And once we had over a million people go through our giveaways platform in 2020, we decided to come up with this extension that would give any person direct compensation for their data. There's no lottery. There's no giveaway anymore. It's more like you get a guaranteed reward if you share your data. This is incredible, right? Because we already all know that we are giving our data away left, right, and center (laughs) every time we put our email into something or are just browsing, whatever it is, we are giving away that data. So you've essentially said, well, why not get paid for it? And, and then the end recipient, whoever it is, the the companies or brands that you're working with get a little bit more of aggregated anonymous data around user behavior, essentially on the, on the web and what they're purchasing and where they're hanging out and, and whatnot, which reality is that everybody already knows this about us, but it's not like, I I don't think there's always the proper mechanisms for Mm -hmm. people to capture that data as Mm -hmm. well as we often feel like it's the fang companies that have that data and not you know the average consumer or brand or company or influencer or celebrity or basketball player whoever it might be that might want to also have that data so this is quite amazing i am sure though that you do get some resistance you know and concerns around this privacy security or what's really happening with the data that you're collecting so how do you tackle or kind of handle the issues that people have around big data or big tech yeah for us there's a few things we do i mean beyond compensating people for their data we also have quite a focus on transparency and on on and on privacy so you know when it comes to transparency we have 11 disclosures from the time somebody lands on our landing page them signing up for surf where we tell them very clearly here's what data we collect and here's what we do with that data so we want people from day 1 knowing what it is we collect and what it is we do with the data we collect mm-hmm. on top of that when you sign up we don't ask you for your first and last name we don't ask you for any personally identifiable info. So you're not going to be sharing data that can be tied back to you individually. You're going to be sharing data as part of a collective because we're going to ask you questions like your age, your gender, your location, your high level demographic information so we can bucket you appropriately. And finally, we do give people the ability to pause the extension at any time. If you don't want to share data for a particular amount of time, you can pause the extension. You won't be sharing data. You won't be getting points back. And you can also go into your My Data page where you can look at every piece of information you've ever shared with us, and you can delete anything in the last 24 hours that you don't want to share with Surf. So we are trying to put people in the driver's seat of their data and kind of make them feel like they are, at the end of the day, in control of what they do and don't want to share. 
Yeah. And ultimately people are opting into this, right? So, you know, that is that you are in control in that sense. Mm -hmm. Um, Curious, what is the earning capacity here? You know, with the, with the browsing, like what are your average users making by giving up their data? Yeah. I mean, the average users, when they share their data are earning about 20 to $30 worth of savings each month, a very engaged user, which is somebody who also is referring their friends on top of just browsing, because when you make a referral, you also get additional points for that. They could earn upwards of $50 worth of savings each month. And again, that doesn't include, by the way, giveaways as well. So surf users can use their points on items. They can use their points on gift cards, on discounts. They can donate their points to charity but they can also put their points into a giveaway. So if you don't want a $10 Amazon gift card, but you want to go ahead and put your points into a giveaway to potentially win a $300 prize, you can do that. And so imagine just being able to enter into a $500, $250 prize each month just by sharing data you already share on a daily basis. That, in my opinion, is is a pretty sweet value add. Yeah, very, very cool. Um, all right. So, you know, you have partnered with some pretty incredible companies. Um, you've also received investment from, you know, VCs, investors, influencers, even celebrities. Did you see that as part of your vision from the start or did one action sort of lead to the next to create these, you know, partnership opportunities and investment opportunities? I I think there were definitely a couple of people early on who I had networked with in kind of my first and second year of university that I really wanted to bring on board, Uh, whether it's Ryan Holmes from Hootsuite, whether it's Michelle Romanoff from Clerico, um, Alan Gannett, who is part of Suite Spot Capital, as well as, you know, posting a lot on LinkedIn as well. Uh, Michael Hyatt, who's based in Toronto and had networks before. These were people who I really like enjoyed chatting with. And I candidly see them as mentors. I see them as friends. I see them as people I can learn a lot from. So I knew kind of early on that if I was to build a company, I'd want them to come on board either as an investor or as an advisor. And then, I mean, in terms of the other people like Cody Ko or Kyle Kuzma um, or Jason Robbins from DraftKings, Raham from Dapper Labs, all these people candidly came about just through, you know, constant introductions, networking that we were doing throughout building the business, you know, and I think one thing I've learned about kind of the fundraising side is, you know, when you get a person to invest, they're going to go and tell everybody about it as well, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, if I invested in the company, well, I'm not going to tell my friends about this company because sure. I'm obviously super passionate about it. And I'm going to try to see if I can get my friends involved as well. So we just benefited a lot, candidly, from early investors making introductions for us to people that we we never knew in the first place. Yeah, so you had a bit of a network effect there too, but some serious intentionality around some of those initial people that you mentioned. What was your approach with with that? I'm curious how you fostered those relationships, especially being, you know, pretty young guy. Yeah, I mean, the good thing is all these people I named, like they are um, pretty excited about learning from young people. Like they're Mm -hmm. so successful in their own careers. But I think the reason they're so successful is they're always looking at what's coming up, what's next. And they learn a lot from younger people about that. Uh, and so those were the types of people I wanted to surround myself with. I didn't want to surround myself with people who were like, oh, you're 20 years old. What do you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yes, I might not be the most wise individual, but I do think that knowledge and wisdom, again, are two different things. And you might not be the wisest person at a young age, but you could definitely be the most knowledgeable person about a particular space. And so I knew that I I had my facts in order. Like I knew that I 
I was very passionate about this world that I was building, but I was also very knowledgeable about all the stakeholders within it, the problems that we might see. Obviously, I was very passionate and knowledgeable about the solution we were building as well. So I knew that, you know, if I was to be given an opportunity to get investment from a Ryan Holmes from Hootsuite, for example, I knew that I'd be able to go ahead and impress anybody that he introduces me to as well. As long as, again, they had an open mind and were willing to listen to what I had to say. But yeah, in terms of how I built those relationships, mainly through networking initially, right? So, you know, interviewing some of these people, um, I'd speak at conferences as well, sometimes with them, sometimes uh, I'd speak at a conference and I'd go up to them after if they were in the green room or if they were also speaking. Um, And the biggest thing is just to be yourself. Like I never uh, had like a plan of like, oh, I'm going to network for three months and then do the ask and try to ask for money it's more of like i'd network with somebody get to know them try to see if i could help them out in any way like if i could set up an introduction for them if i could interview them and tell their story on my linkedin account i'd love to do that most of the time um and then later on if i told them hey i want your input on this idea that i'm working on and they were really interested then i would go and say hey are you interested in in investing Mm -hmm. and even when i asked them for investment it wasn't like i was asking one investor for five hundred thousand dollars I was normally actually asking some of these people for like 10K checks, 25K checks, checks that for them are, isn't candidly a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, for them, you know, just being able to get involved, get some skin in the game, it obviously does go a long way overall. Fair enough. You know, yeah. I, th- I, I think a lot of people listening here can learn from that approach of just being genuine, genuine, being yourself, but really being of service as well to others. I think that is a really great place to start is to remember that you also have something you can offer, whether it is your platform or an introduction or, or whatnot. So that's awesome. What would you say then have been the top three decisions that you have made to really grow your business and take it to where it is today? Because we can argue that you are now a serial entrepreneur and have, you know, been quite successful. I know you still have a lot of runway, but I'd love to know what you feel are the top three decisions and actions that you've taken. I think number one, I, I learned very quickly that being a good entrepreneur and being a good manager are two different things. So I tried as much as possible, especially when the pandemic began to be an empathetic manager. I think that was probably the best decision I did is just to double down on understanding very clearly that as an employer, you are there to work for your employees. It's not the other way around. So that sort of focus that I had during the pandemic really helped because we grew our team from 13 people to 40 people during the pandemic. And we, you know, we were bringing people on who we had never even met in person before, you know, we'd only met them really after the pandemic ended. Um, And so for us, we were very focused on making sure that you know, if people wanted to take time off, let them take time off. You know, we had a mandatory two week vacation policy because we had some people who just never took time off and we needed them to go and do that. Even if it was just getting off your laptop and doing whatever else you want in the house for two weeks, do it. Um, we wanted to institute things like a paranoia session, hopes and fears session where people could come and share hopes that they have for the company, but also fears that they have both personally and professionally and feel open to kind of share all of that in front of the entire company and get direct feedback or direct direct support on that. And we also did things like, you know, letting people, you know, anybody in the company really ping me at any time and and book a quick five minute call with me if they wanted to chat with me. I try to keep my door open as much as I can, even virtually. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, you know, I do block off certain times, you know, to really put work kind of down and, and work um, on stuff that I need to get done, whether it's email or docs or whatever, like I do have heads down time. 
Um, but I try as much as possible to leave my calendar open for people to come in and just book a five minute call with me if they need that. That was number one. I think number two, another decision I think we made was just constantly listening to customer feedback, but more importantly, also understanding where our market was going. You know, I think for some people, they might see like, hey, like Surface pivoted a few times now, but I don't necessarily see it as a pivot as much as just an evolution. Mm -hmm. You know, a pivot would entail that three years ago, what we were doing, we don't do it anymore. We actually still offer social data. So Instagram yeah. and your data, you can come on our platform and slice and dice it in the same way you could three years ago. But we've evolved our product dramatically to also include giveaway data, to include web data, to include this larger theme of zero party opt-in data. Right. And that's it's something an evolution that, of, of, of the original platform. Yeah. Exactly. And that sort of evolution wouldn't have happened if we hadn't constantly listened to our top customers. Mm -hmm. We have a customer advisory board that we meet with quarterly. We get their feedback. We show them our product roadmap. We get more feedback. We go back to the table. We make changes based on that. So that sort of kind of intentional focus on customer feedback throughout, not just in the early days, but throughout building the company has really helped us evolve. Mm -hmm. And finally, I think the last thing in terms of a, a lesson that's helped me, I think at the end of the day, I've, I've had a pretty um, decent success with fundraising. And I think the reason why I've been a decent fundraiser is because I'm quite reasonable. I think that's the number one thing that mm -hmm. a, a person fundraising can do is you know, when you put it together, financial projections, don't, don't show stuff that you just think is bullshit, right? Yeah. Try to show reasonable growth, try to, you know, write down your assumptions in the document and, and try to, you know, show, Hey, this is reasonable because of X, Y, and Z, because of our past year's growth, because of our pipeline that's coming up and these sort of customers that are very close to coming on because of our market size increasing because of these companies that we're work competing with also growing in this manner around their second or third year, whatever it is, try to be reasonable. And that goes not just for your projections, it just even goes for your pitch overall. Mm -hmm. You know, when an investor is asking you questions, treat that investor's questions with utmost care. And even if it was phrased wrong, try to answer the best version of that question. So you're not just, you know, yeah. boring an investor's question because they phrased it wrong. You're giving them the benefit of the doubt that they are asking the hardest version of that question and you're willing to tackle it as well. I, I love that so much that you just packed in there. So if I can recap, we've got really being an empathetic leader, leading with openness and transparency, um, and, and just being kind of that open door policy for your, for your team. And then the customer feedback, I think this is so key. And a lot of people miss this. If you don't really know what your ideal customer, your, your targeted customer wants, and you're not evolving that because a, it changes, um, then you're never going to be able to have a product that continually meets their needs, right? It might meet their needs in one day, but in a year from now, or even a week from now, maybe it doesn't. And then the last I think is so true, right? We, we like to make our pitch decks and our investment pitches very fancy. And, you know, um, we want to make them sound incredible. So it looks like a great investment opportunity, but a true investor is going to be able to see right through that and want to get right down to what, what's reasonable here. Um, and, and do you think that now that you are also an investor and you advise ventures that that has really informed your own ability to be on the both sides, I guess, of the table, but to be able to raise capital as well as to place capital? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think for me, I've been pretty good at kind of figuring out what I'm interested in, in terms mm -hmm. of spaces that I want to invest in, um, and just being very disciplined on those. So for me, I love investing in 
any sort of like future off industry. So like, mm -hmm. for example, future of gaming, future of art, you know, those are companies like Face Clan or Wombo that I've been able to invest in. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I've been able to also fund specific sort of like brick and mortar stores that I am a consumer of, whether it's Brasa Peruvian that I think is going to hopefully be the Chipotle for Peruvian food mm -hmm. down the road um, or other ship, which is an incredible place yeah. to you know, to, <laughs> I'm booked uh, in there for for two weeks from now. So unbelievable, unbelievable. I'm getting it, but I was a consumer there first, and yeah. then I was like, I really like this, and I really want to be a part of this. So those are the types of companies that I do fund. But again, at the end of the day, the common, I guess, silver lining across all the companies that I fund is that they're just backed by people that I love and people that yeah. I really want to surround myself with. These are people I think I could learn from. These are people that I look up to in so many different ways. So again, going back to this whole idea of networking. And also try to be intentional about who you bring on board. You know, that also goes for just bringing people on board in your life generally. Friends, colleagues, mentors, Absolutely. people that you invest in. Be very intentional about those people in terms of their character, who they are, and what sort of skill set they've come kind of bring to the table that might be helpful for you down the road. Yeah. And for anyone who's in the process of potentially raising capital, to think about that from your perspective, who do you actually want on your cap table? Do you want just their money or do you want their advice, their friendship, their, you know, being in their environment, their orbit? Are they actually invested in your growth, your success? Do they understand your product, your your service offering, the your ecosystem? Because sometimes it's just going to be very challenging if you bring on someone who doesn't meet all of those criteria. Um, that relationship down the road will, will have friction. So I love that you shared your approach. And actually, for anyone who is listening, do you have any advice for our listeners that maybe have a seed of an idea, right? And they can see that vision for their company, but they're at a point where maybe the vision just seems unrealistic or too big, or it scares them, yep. or they just have fear around taking that first step to actually bringing that vision to life. What would your advice be for them? Yeah. I mean, number one, it's always good to have a really big vision because I actually always get asked a question around like how you stay motivated. And again, like it's worth noting that it's not, you know, I don't, I'm not motivated every day. Like there's some days just like every other human being where I wake up on the wrong side of the bed or I'm not excited about what I'm doing. And again, I think those are the days that are even more important than ever to show discipline and to just get up and get along with your day. Um, but when it comes to inspiration and motivation or whatever you want to call it, you know, some people like watching YouTube videos, some people like um, setting kind of personal hobbies, personal goals and challenging their life there. One of the ways that I source my motivation is by not only having a team that I know I have to work every single day for, but also by having a really big vision in terms of like, if surf is successful, what does the world look like then? And I become obsessed with that world. I like, I want to live in it. I want to live in that world where surf is successful in X, Y, and Z that we do. And so that's not a bad problem to have. I think just having clarity on that, but also, by the way, having ongoing clarity is important because I guarantee you your vision from day one will be very different from your vision on day 30, on day 365, on day 720, et cetera. Um, but I, I would say that try as much as possible to then break down your vision in terms of what are some of the most important things in that vision that you need to get done first and build a priority system then where you can actually focus on, okay, stage one, phase one of my vision is this, and we need to get to this within six months. And then within a year, we want to get to phase two. And here's what phase two looks like, because if you want to build a business, 
you're not going to be able to probably do your big vision right away within six months. It's very unlikely. Mm-hmm. So you need to be very patient, but more importantly, you need to be reasonable about what sort of goals you're going to set for you and your team when it comes to what you guys want to accomplish six months from now, 12 months from now, et cetera. For us, I mean, our overall vision is to help people comp- is, is, is help people monetize any aspect of the digital footprint not just browsing data, but app usage data, fitness data, purchasing data, geolocation data. Right now, we're only at browsing data on desktop. We're not even on mobile yet. So mm-hmm. we have a long, long ways to go. But that's why for me, I'm, I'm not in it for like one year. I'm in it for 10, 15 years to build Surf Out and see if it succeeds. I love that, that you see that grand vision and you know exactly where you are now and you're realistic about how that's going to grow and scale. And I yeah. think it's highly, uh, this this advice you've given is highly applicable to, to any project, whether mm-hmm. it is building a business, whether it is your life, whether it is a workout regimen or just getting healthy, right? Breaking that down into, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to meal plan and I'm going to walk that like, this is how it is. And before you know it, two years from now, you have the ideal body, what, whatever it might be. I personally have had to get super micro with some of my goals. I have the big vision, but in order to actually execute, because sometimes I'm thinking down there and then I'm, I'm kind of like, I'm not there yet. And I'm so far from it. And it just seems insurmountable to even get there. But then when I say, well, does this action move me closer? And does this action move me closer? And sometimes that's like, even for this podcast, I would break it down into, okay, record or write the questions, record, do the intro, you know, like all of those little micro steps. That's how micro I get with everything now, because by the end of the week, you look and you're like, oh, I built a landing page. I did this. I, you know, my website got launched, whatever it is. Um, And in, in your case, obviously a pretty massive endeavor, but this is, this is how it gets done. So, you know, you, you did talk about the phased approach and your you know, ultimate horizon or ultimate vision for surf. Um, so how do you, how do you plan to kind of keep growing and scaling that? Is it just going from, okay, we're on desktop next is enable mobile, and then we'll roll out to other types of data is, is, you know, how, how do you plan for that growth? Yeah. So for us, we just about two weeks ago launched in the UK. Um, and that was the biggest country on our wait list. Mm. Um, previously, again, we had only been in North America, Canada, and the US. Um, we're at currently around 250,000 users. Uh, our goal by the end of 2023 is to be at 1.3 million users. And so I think for us, there are a couple of things that we need to do to get there. Number one, the mobile solution for sure will help, you know, in terms of launching that mobile solution um, and being able to get people compensated for their mobile browsing, their mobile app usage data. And then secondly, is also expanding surf to a few other regions. So Italy, Spain, Portugal, the Philippines, India, Brazil, the six biggest countries on our wait list are countries that we're looking to get into in 2023. Um, and I think past that, obviously, hoping to double down on paid advertising so we can ramp up our paid marketing spend. Right now, most of our users have come from referrals organically, just people telling their friends and family members about surf. So we are hoping to kind of implement a paid marketing program in 2023 and really double down on that. 
Well, we'll probably start seeing you pop up in our browsers hopefully soon. And yeah. for anyone listening, get get the extension and and start monetizing your data. Um, there's a plug for you there for our few few listeners that we have. No, we've got more than a few. Um, all right. So beyond surf, do you have any other business ideas on the horizon? You mentioned your notebook of ideas, but are there any that you can share or that you plan to you pursue in the future? Yeah, I think for, for me right now, surf is 99% of my week. It's my main focus. Uh, that being said, though, I am launching a Formula One podcast next year. Um, wow. I'm announcing it next week. Um, we've been working on it now for the last eight months in terms of putting together the brand, the website, uh, the media kit, our sponsorship deck, getting sponsors on board, confirming guests for season one. So we are shooting season one in Europe from Jan 10 to Feb 11th. Um, and we're going to release season one uh, in March when the next F1 season comes out. So those two projects, awesome. and the F1 podcast are going to keep me quite busy. Um, obviously, throughout the year, I'll probably still continue to do LinkedIn meetups, speak at various events throughout 2023, uh, and hopefully be able to talk about the work that we're doing at SURF. I love that. Well, I hope to you know pop into one of your meetups in the future. Uh, and also you mentioned speaking, uh, for, for those of you listening, Swish is an amazing speaker. He spoke on stages around the world. What is it about being on stage that you love? I think for me, like I debated again, growing up quite a bit. Um, and when I was in high school, I debated on the national team for three years and went to two world competitions. And I was pretty used to public speaking and just speaking in front of big audiences and sharing what I felt or what my opinions were on something. Um, so you kind of miss that. I think when you stop competitively debating, you just want to yeah. speak to an audience and you want to get up there and, and show what you know. Um, I also just generally, when I speak, I, I try as much as possible to have fun. You know, I, I, mm-hmm. I, I treat it as a way to connect with people to hopefully give them a nugget or some sort of knowledge that they previously didn't have, but also to learn from the audience, which is why, you know, some of my favorite formats when I speak are fireside chats, for example, where audience members can ask me questions throughout. I have a moderator that's kind of sharing their knowledge as well, along with asking me questions. That's where I feel like I'm actually learning something as well while I'm sharing my story or while I'm sharing my thoughts. So I just enjoy speaking because I think it allows me to meet great people, allows me to share what I know. And obviously I do learn a lot, especially in specific formats like a fireside chat. Yeah, I love that. And you know, you, you're creating a platform for yourself to do the things that you love to do by mm-hmm. being on that stage. It's it's the same for me. I actually right. grew up doing public speaking, also doing debate. I was part of a theater company, went nice. to business, so got to present a bit in business school and then started right. working corporately and it all went away. And so it's actually more recently, I, you know, I started speaking on panels when I was working in the commercial real estate industry, but when I went out on my own, I, I, I had lots of opportunities to speak when I was working with certain clients and whatnot, but this podcast really has become the medium for me to feel like I'm back on stage again. And I love it, but for the same reasons as you. A, I, I do love connecting with people through conversation and I'm super curious. I love to know what people are building, but I also want to give people the platform to share their ideas, especially uh, founders that are often underrepresented in, in the space. So that's why I've started this podcast, but that's a good reminder to people that if there's something that you love to do, don't be, don't wait 
for someone to give you the platform, go and create the platform for yourself. And, and you did that so early on, even with the interview interviews that you used to do with people yep. through LinkedIn. Right. And so there's a way to start at beta before you end up on a TEDx stage yep. globally. Yep. Right. Yep. Yep. hundred percent. And I think yeah. one thing I'm open to doing even today is I, I don't particularly, um, care like if if I have like a nonprofit that reaches out to me if I have like a school or university that wants me to speak I've actually had a, a kind of an arrangement with my speakers bureau spotlight in Toronto that there are certain venues that I will be allowed to speak just for free even like mm-hmm. and so I'm fine doing stuff like that um I obviously you know there's some times where things get busy and I'm not able to speak at an event but I still enjoy speaking for the sake of speaking I know there's some people once they make speaking even a part-time career they're really only focused on the money but for me like I just generally enjoy the art of speaking and I I also would say that you know in today's world where um so many people are public speaking a lot of people think that oh by virtue of me being an entrepreneur I can automatically be a speaker but that's not how it works like speaking is something that takes a lot of time to perfect uh it's a craft that you do have to practice and you do have to really hone um, and that's what I enjoy doing is every year I try to see, am I getting better at speaking? Am I connecting with audiences a lot better? Is my story becoming more polished? Is it becoming clearer to people? Um, and am I adding as much value as I can in a 30 minute talk or 45 minute talk, whatever it is. And so though, that is stuff that I hold myself to. I try to kind of add a competitive aspect of speaking as well that I used to have with debate in terms of trying to get better every single year. I love that, right? It's it's an evolution as you evolve. So so too will your speaking, but having the intentionality of of wanting to be better, I think is is really key. So what yeah. would you say? You know, you've shared what your mission really is for what you're doing with Surf, but what would you say is your personal mission or your personal why that drives all that you do? Yeah, I think number one, it's my mother. Um, you know, my mom is the most important person in my life, and again, you know everything that I've been able to do to this point it's been because of her support and mm-hmm. also just her kind of guided lessons that she's taught me throughout growing up and you know driving me around and letting me explore my curiosities and giving me the freedom to even drop out and pursue my dream of building a business so that's number one um, I think number two I do have um, ideas that I think will make the world a better place in some aspect um, and so I, I do feel like not acting on those ideas would be a disservice to kind of the knowledge that I have and also the will and motivation I have to mm-hmm. go and pursue my ideas fully. So that's another big aspect. And then I think finally is just um, for lack of a better word, legacy, you know, like I do want to, I do want to do something here where when it's all said and done, people look back and are like, well, yeah, Swish did make an impact on the world in some aspect. Um, and so I, I do think a little bit about it, especially as I get older every year, I I always think like, you know, hey, now that I'm out of my teens or now that I'm in my mid 20s, um, how are people going to remember the first 25 years of my life? And, you know, are people even going to think about it in a positive way or are they going to see it, you know, as a, oh, he didn't, he didn't kind of maximize every opportunity that he got. That's probably something I would never want. Well, I can tell you, outwardly, I feel like you have more than maximized your opportunities. So I am just excited to see what the next 25 and the next 25 bring for you. But I loved what you shared in there specifically around um, the ideas that you have in it being a disservice of not bringing them to life. And and conversely, the the legacy piece and, and the legacy not being about you. But I think what one thing people forget is there is a cost 
to your inaction, yep, right? There. And I always like to, I actually came up with this saying just a couple of weeks ago and I put out a little meme about it, but it came to me because I was thinking a lot about the concept of imperfect action as a recovering perfectionist here. I have to constantly just get myself to get going and get it done and, and not let everything be perfect. So I was thinking about imperfect action and what the benefits of just acting imperfectly can be. Mm-hmm. And the one that came to me is that imperfect action equals impact. Right. And quite literally, if you take the first three letters of imperfect and the first three letters of action, it is impact when you put it together. Mm-hmm. And that that's that piece of there's so many people who will miss out on the things that you are meant to do, that you're meant to create, that the ideas that you have when you sit in, in action. So I yep. appreciate you sharing that that's really what drives you. It's what drives me too, is I picture, I actually try to visualize that the people who are going to miss out on me, you know, not giving them a chance to speak on my platform because I didn't want to launch a platform or not helping them to raise capital, whatever it might be, the things that, that I do. So I, I think that's really key and such a great driving force for you to have. So as we wrap up today, do you have any final advice for our listeners who might be considering an entrepreneurial endeavor of their own, or maybe they're already on one? Yeah, I think number one, um, if you are looking to build a business, um, try as much as possible to focus on feedback right away, as opposed to trying to make your idea as quote unquote perfect as possible. Like I mentioned, the idea you start off with is unlikely going to be the idea that you find success with or the idea that you scale eventually. Um, And that idea is obviously going to transform based on customer feedback, based on the team that you assemble around you, their input as well as where your market is going. So don't spend like five weeks trying to build the perfect idea because you're just never going to be able to get there and you actually might miss your window of opportunity. Mm -hmm. What you really need to do is take an existing idea and go out and start talking to people about it. You know, potential customers, potential investors, friends of yours that you know are ultra honest with you that might have a good perspective on this. Go and talk to them, get their feedback and ask them questions like, do you think there's value in this? What else have you seen that is similar to this idea? And if you do find value in this, how much would you pay for it? Those are the questions that I think are the most crucial to ask at the very beginning that will give you a good understanding of whether or not you need to pursue this idea full time or not. And the second and kind of probably the most important thing is while you are building a business, do you know understand that your mental health, your physical health is incredibly important. Um, if you aren't managing your mental health, you will burn out eventually. I have burnt out now twice <laughs> in the last four years. And I can tell you that it's not a pretty sight. It's not good. It's also not, you know, generally something that I would encourage people to 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 ever do because you're kind of also doing your team a disservice, mm-hmm. you know, when you burn out. Like you're not going to be able to perform well for them. You're not going to be able to meet your expectations. And it kind of becomes a vicious cycle where you start beating yourself up and start making your life and your health worse and worse and worse. So try even from the very beginning to set time aside during a weekend to just disconnect entirely and do what you love when it comes to other hobbies and other passions that you have, which are incredibly important to keep up with and not lose. So try as much as possible in the beginning to start those habits, because, you know, that was something I wish I did um, that I've now started to do over the last two years. And it's made a crazy amount of impact in terms of my health, motivation, how I kind of am able to show up and perform for my team Mm -hmm. each day. Yeah. And you're going to be able to serve and, and continue to serve people if you're well first, 
right? Yeah, and when you're not well, you're you can't you can't create that impact that we were talking about in yeah. in in the grandest way possible. Uh, so thanks for sharing that. And now I have a question that I ask all of my my guests because I'm just very curious as to what you're listening to these days or reading these days. Is there any book, podcast, song, music, whatever that you could recommend? Yeah, I'm not reading a lot candidly these days. Um, Podcast wise, not many either. Like I'm obviously so focused on making my own. Yeah. (laughs) So I've kind of blocked out all the noise. Um, In terms of music, though, I've been listening to a lot of Fred again. Um, Fred again is this DJ that's coming up and becoming quite popular. And he's based out of London. Um, but the cool part about his music is that he includes snippets from his real life. Mm. So he takes like video, audio and video recordings from his friends going out, you know, or having a dinner or, or sitting together playing at a park or whatever. Like he takes all of these audio recordings and adds them into his songs. Um, it, so it's kind of a very cool like yeah. exercise even of like if you are into music, trying to see can you incorporate your actual life with the music that you're making and as somebody who loves playing music as a hobby and is starting to get more and more into it as a hobby I do enjoy listening to his music because there's so much depth and levels to it to, to kind of unpack and uncover that's really cool I'll have to check him out because I have definitely not heard that so it's audio overlaid on top of the the, the music itself or yeah. you, okay very cool yeah, and very at the cool. end of the day it's house music it's electronic yeah. music, so you know you have to kind of be into that genre sure. but um, if you like dance music and you want the music that you're listening to to also have some really relatable, Depth. like, yeah. you know, messaging, like, like things that we can all relate to things that kind of are aspects, maybe that you're not even ready to be vulnerable about yet. Uh, Freddie Gans music might be a really cool way to connect mm-hmm. with an artist. Like him well, I'm definitely it. into that because one of the things I don't always love about house music is the lack of like lyrics so or meaning or and so this is cool I'm gonna check it out I because I love I love that kind of stuff okay well thank you for that Mm -hmm. Um, and lastly how can our listeners continue to learn more about surf or engage with you online and we'll be sure to add that all to the show notes yeah definitely yeah if you guys are interested in in checking out surf feel free to go to joinsurf.com um, again, if you're in the UK, US or Canada, you can download the extension right away and start earning. Um, and then in terms of me personally, LinkedIn or Instagram, so Swish Kiswami on LinkedIn um, or at GoSwish on Instagram are the two places that you can find me. Feel free to shoot me a message. I'm try to be as approachable as I can and try to respond to everybody that does message me. Well, awesome. Thank you, Swish. This has been such a pleasure and I appreciate you joining us today. Thank you again. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Futura Talks. I hope it has left you inspired and motivated to pursue your dreams, find your calling, and follow your heart in your life and business. If you enjoyed this conversation, it would mean so much to me if you would consider leaving a review and better yet, sharing this episode with someone who will be inspired to start building their own Futura. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode and I will see you next week.